I think some of the marketing can be really misleading when mm. it's sold as like a vegetable crisp, but really has like, when you look at the label, 0.3% of like kale or 0.3% of like, you know, spinach powder. But on the front, it's just it's just talking about vegetables across the whole packet. Um, and it actually contains more salt than vegetables, as in salt yeah. is higher up on the ingredients list than vegetables. So I do think there is a, a bit, lot of misleading stuff out there. I founded the BeWell Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. And today we look at a topic regarding food labeling and nutrition and our food environment. A topic that I work in a lot and I have got a fantastic expert to guide you through any misconceptions that you might be fearing at the moment. We talk about the new headlines recently regarding BMI, We talk how you can navigate your way through supermarket shelves and food labelling. And we also discuss the most recent topic about calories being on menus. Now, I'm thrilled to have a wonderful expert on today. She is the head of nutrition at Jamie Oliver. She's also worked within the sugar tax campaign and many other public health campaigns implementing important policies. So I couldn't have anyone better with more broad knowledge on these subjects than Jenny Rosenberg, who is a registered nutritionist. Before we go into this episode, I want to take two minutes to thank my sponsor, OMG Waters, for supporting this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well, because without our sponsors, these episodes wouldn't be possible. Now, OMG Water is a fantastic, new, delicious, sparkling drink, which contains 15% of your recommended daily allowance of magnesium. And that, guys, is as much as an avocado. Now, you might be thinking, I know magnesium might be important, but why? So magnesium is needed for a range of psychological and biochemical functions, including muscle and nerve function. It's a really important mineral when it comes to stress. And various trials have shown that low magnesium levels have been associated with the elevated levels of cortisol release and that is our stress hormone. So it is known as an anti-stress mineral, some might say, but that is important if you are depleted. So we want to make sure that we don't just rely on supplementation, that we are getting enough magnesium rich foods within our body. Because it has been shown that up to 75% of us in the UK can be depleted. So where do you get it from? You can get it from nuts, seeds, all of your leafy greens, lots of plant-based sources are packed full of magnesium. So grab yourself an OMG water to have alongside your rich magnesium foods. It's delicious and it's not packed full of sugars and sweeteners. They are in stores now and online. Head to www.omgwater.com to purchase yours.
Benny, welcome to Live Well, Be Well today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Monday morning, so let's see how well warmed up the brain is. <laughs> I know. I mean, let's just tell everyone we have to re-record <laughs> this, first of all, because we did a fantastic, I mean, as you said, it felt like a chat, a general chat between yeah. two of us. Um, and I loved it, but sadly we couldn't have the we couldn't hear you. Um I know. So I'm so pleased that we can actually hear you well today because you gave so much valuable information that I felt it was so important to to re-record this so people got the real benefits of, of uh, I don't really know what happened there like a, a year into remote working <laughs> and tech and I still couldn't manage it so yeah sorry about that hopefully we could recreate uh, <laughs> no I mean I'm so pleased to have you here because your expertise we we're talking about public health really today and the impact of policies and there's been so much in the news recently about the calories being on the menus that's a huge mm. one BMI in the last month that's come out a lot mm. in the press the impact towards our food environment I mean there's so many things to discuss and I thought who better to get on than you um you've got so much expertise in this area so firstly I just love you to give a wonderful intro on yourself and all the work that you've done over the years yeah, sure. So I suppose I've always worked in um, public health, um, particular focus, I suppose, in, in child obesity. Um, so I started off actually working for a, a programme called MEND, which is an acronym, and that was Child Weight Management and Lifestyle Programmes, and they were family-based. Um, and they were about teaching nutrition, having physical activity components, and also, um, really importantly, behaviour change components. So developed by a multidisciplinary team of dietitians, registered nutritionists, um, academics and researchers, clinical psychologists. Um, so that that was a great start to my career because I was working with families on the ground and I don't think you ever learn as much as you do in those kind of situations. Um, but then after that, I started working at a campaign group called Action on Sugar. And that was very much talking to businesses and talking to the government about the quality of foods on the shelves or in restaurants to improve the nutritional density of them and reduce the sugar. They'd had a similar campaign group action on salt where they'd really successfully helped to reduce salt in um, products. And um, it's more about removing away from that idea of individual responsibility all of the time um, to provide a healthier food environment. And I suppose the difference there was at the MEND programme, you had quite engaged families walking through the door and getting the support. And obviously there's a place for kind of that behaviour change element when it comes to nutrition. Um, but this, this other kind of work, this campaign policy type of work was making, producing a food environment which, in which people could make healthier choices. Um, mm. Because at the moment, it's not really conducive to that. It's harder to, let's say. And I know we're going to come into that. Um, currently now I work as head of nutrition at Jamie Oliver's and that's a really kind of broad role and um, lots of policy campaigning work in there as well and um, plus do a lot of kind of freelance and consultancy type of projects as well so a bit of a mix. Really really broad but just so much in actually making change I think a large part and the hardest part within nutrition and regulation is policy but that yeah. is where change really really happens so when we look at our food environment you know, how impactful is our food environment towards our nutritional choices? I think, I think that policy point is, is interesting as well, just to start, because when I was in, you know, studying and in lectures, I never thought that, you know, being a nutritionist would end up quite political. So that's been a big learning curve, but also my favourite part, um, which is interesting. But um, yeah, so our food environment plays a huge role in, in what we consume. And actually, I, I tried to move away from the word choice <laughs> as much yes. as possible because what happens is there's always this idea um which is usually stigmatizing really from the general public um 
and definitely deliberately pushed by the food industry about free choice and the Mm -hmm. idea that there's all this food out there and it's up to us as individuals to go and make a healthy choice or an unhealthy choice and then that is on us what no one discusses is that there's not a level playing field in our ability to make these different choices because we don't just make food choices based on health it's based on accessibility time money um, lots and lots of lots of different factors culture um, it could be a family situation it could be like um particular kind of eating styles of a child which is um make, makes things trickier so there's loads and loads and loads to consider there yet we just put it down to choice now healthier food is a lot more accessible to some people than others and that's mm-hmm. why we do see um higher levels of obesity in more socially deprived areas um so we are talking about things when we when we say the food environment about how food is marketed to us um, how food is promoted to us, what foods are on promotion. Um, a lot of the, the products that are more heavily marketed and promoted are the more energy dense, more calorific, but um, kind of less nutrient dense foods. And that's because there tends to be a higher profit margin in these products. Mm-hmm. So um, when we constantly have all, all of those foods that are targeted at us are the less healthy ones. And then we're kind of told and they're more accessible and the shelf life is longer and all these other things. And then we're told but you didn't go and just make a healthy choice. It's all your fault. Um, that becomes really difficult. There's a lot of targeting that has been anyway um, at kids as well with kind of characters on packaging and loads and loads of stuff to, to consider there. So yeah, we're talking about the food that surrounds us all the time and all the prompts that are put there by industry in order to get us to eat these foods because quite honestly, the more of those types of foods that we eat, um, the more profit industry are making that's a really difficult cycle to break because you're asking industry on their, of their own will to not make as much profit um, in order to help create a, a healthier population. Um, now that's not to say that it's really impossible to kind of create profit from healthier products as well. Um, and I know we'll come on to talk about the sugar tax. That'll be a really good example. and We'll touch on it later. Um, but that's why we need regulation. We need government to step in. We need some legislation around some of this stuff. And then it makes it easier for the industry that want to do a really good job because they there's more of a level playing field. So it's not the ones that kind of want to stick in their head above the parapet and then, you know, losing out because of that. So that's why we need legislation to kind of bring everyone up to the same level and change the food um, gradually over time and improve it. And that is why policy basically is so important because yeah. even looking in... I mean, you've been studying nutrition for a while and and, and vice versa and m- myself, not as long as you, but when I started studying nutrition, nobody talked about nutrition. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a cool thing to do. So there was probably less marketing towards healthier. Mm. And I say that in like inverted commas, um, choices. Yeah. And in, all of a sudden in the last kind of like five to six years, there's been a huge surge even towards kind of healthier options in the, in the yeah. supermarket. And I think that can be really conflicting because now there is this stigma around that you have to be a certain type of person to afford a certain type of food to be really Mm -hmm. healthy, again, Mm -hmm. in kind of inverted commas. And that puts a lot of stress and pressure on so many people because, Mm. you know, they are spending most of their living wage on trying to, you know, essentially be healthy. And I think I really want to break down this stigma towards what it is to be healthy because you don't have to go and spend all of your wage on specific food products to be healthy. And I think that's a really important area of conversation because not only does that increase the stress, which is one, one pillar of, of 
staying healthy. Um, and it puts a lot of pressure on people to spend excess money on food that necessarily isn't going to do anything more than buying basic produce that's grown in the ground or you know yeah. picked up from certain supermarkets so I think can we just talk about essentially what it is to be healthy and how people can navigate into actually coming away from these fads and marketing products that put a lot of pressure on us to spend excess money yeah you're so right because we talk about healthy marketing but actually healthier um is, is a bit of a marketing tactic as well mm. so what ends up happening is all these products that are promoted as as healthier all the time um that really aren't I mean there are some out there that have wild claims so nutrition and health claims the claims that are on the front of the packet telling you x y and z is not well regulated field it just really isn't so you do get a lot of misleading claims on the front of packaging um products promising to deliver all sorts um so that that is an issue as well at the complete other end of the spectrum um this kind of expensive wellness um, brand of products the wellness word I can't stand the wellness word <laughs> yeah yeah it's a whole commercial area in itself and that also is an issue um so you you just want to like strip it right back really and yeah. for me it's not about a healthy food or an unhealthy food as such it's about a healthier kind of diet overall so mm. my stance on this is always like there's a place for all different foods in our diets it's mm -hmm. about how often and how much because yeah. one in isolation is not going to have you know an unhealthy impact on you it's mm. kind of the build-up and the accumulation of the, the way that we're eating all the time so mm. yeah there's two ends of the spectrum here and I'm always mindful of it when we talk about public health and we talk about obesity and we talk about nutrition that it's not fear-mongering it's not making people think that they have to go and buy really really expensive products that are gonna yeah deliver all sorts of nutrition that really they've completely oversold I think and I think to follow on from that can we just kind of talk about a few health claims that you could see on packaging that actually people can then because I think for us we can spot it quite quickly but because we're we understand that field so well but for the normal person going out to a supermarket seeing like superfood written on a pack or I don't know two of your five a day but it's you know a very high condensed fructose fruit product yeah um, and moon boosting has been a big one lately as well and moon boosting because of yeah coronavirus. yeah that's one of the worst yeah. ones and so can we talk about some of these health claims that you could see on packaging that can allow people to make that choice for themselves to say actually if I spend this money it's not going to be such a dramatic like dramatic change basically yeah, I feel like if they're if they're making it sound like their food is an absolute magic ingredient, then they, they've probably overclaimed there. <laughs> I mean, that you know, superfood that is not a health claim. Immune boosting, you can't boost your immune system as such, and um, not a claim. I think you know there are other claims like there's a lot around gut health as well. That's not a regulated um, area as such. So I think with the claims, like there are ones that are high in fiber, source of fiber, source of calcium, you know, there's lots of really legitimate ones and that can be helpful. But then the other part of that conversation is when you see those claims, but they're on products that also are high in saturated fat or salt or sugar, that can be quite difficult for people mm. to then kind of marry all of that. Um, mm. So I think best practice is that companies wouldn't put those health claims on products that are red on front of packet, for example, for those kind of nutrients that do contribute towards poor health if consumed in excess over time. Um, cereals is a great example of that. You know, we see that a lot on cereals. It'd be high fiber. It would be a child cereal that was high fiber all over it. Lots of green ticks, um, but very red for sugar and salt mm. as an example. Mm -hmm. um, so all of that I think can be misleading. There are some 
products as well like you said are kind of the really sugar dense ones that are sold as kind of some of your five a day and that's because the the, the fruit has been processed it's not whole fruit anymore um and so it's in a completely different form it can, contains kind of different sugar sugars that we call free sugars which i know that we'll we'll come on to but also some of these types of crisps that are like vegetable crisps um <laughs> and some of them are better than others i have to say um, and even with those kind of yeah, fruit products that aren't whole fruit anymore. There are some that do contain more fiber than others. So maybe there is a stepping stone approach here that it's like, Mm. it's not as great as your fruit, but it's not, you know, the same as kind of some of the other products that contain no nutrients. So I just want to caveat with that. But I think some of the marketing can be really misleading when Mm. it's sold as like vegetable crisp, but really has like, when you look at the label, 0.3% of like kale or 0.3% of like, you know, spinach powder, but on the front, it's just it's just talking about vegetables across the whole packet. Um, and it actually contains more salt than vegetables, as in salt yeah. is higher up on the ingredients list than vegetables. So I do think there is a, bit, a lot of misleading stuff out there. Um, so you would just tell people, because it is hard to navigate, if it, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. We don't need to be that like oversensitive about what we're eating. Mm-hmm. Um, but just use the front of pack kind of information, the traffic light system when that's available. Um, to help guide choices and sometimes you'll have products that have red labels the majority of time you're aiming for green and amber um, because the rest of it is really wildly overcomplicated. So on to food labeling so that's a really important point so traffic licensing is again a really good um, one that's talking about public policy actually that was put in to help people navigate quickly those snaps, snapshot decisions basically mm. when you're in a supermarket about which are the healthier foods and which ones are the less healthier choices but I still think food labeling can be so confusing for most people because when you actually look at the back of the packet, there's so many different elements there. And actually, where do sugars fit in? You know, what is this? You know, the breakdown of carbohydrates can be quite interesting. How do you know if you're having a much how much fiber you're having? So all of these things behind a food label can actually be quite overwhelming for most people. So can we just break down really essentially when we're looking at a food label, how we can navigate whether it's a healthy, healthier choice, do I want to say, or a less healthier choice? Because two thirds generally of our supermarket baskets in the UK are full of ultra processed foods. Mm -hmm. So it's a really important area for most people to try and understand and navigate themselves. Yeah, so one of the problems with food labeling is the lack of consistency. Again, I will always take it back to the regulation piece because there's lack of um, consistency. So some um, supermarkets, some manufacturers, they'll color code um, with their frontal pack labeling um, and others won't. So there is a separate piece going on there at the moment with government that's looking at what is the best frontal pack labeling system because other countries have different um, things. A lot of them have different, just like an overall kind of score. Whereas we break down per nutrient, the different color. And I think there's pros and cons of both. And then also talking about how can we legislate that to make it consistent so that everyone has to do it because you could end up with just the one, the healthier products, you know, the ones that are all reds basically choose not to color code because you know, why would they, they don't have to. Um, So first of all, there's a big mixture there. I think like as a first port of call, like that is helpful to look at those um, colors. And it's just to bear in mind that they are based on percentage of reference intake. So that's kind of the, maximum amount of these nutrients so it's based on fat saturated fat sugar and salt and the yeah the maximum amount kind of recommended for each of those nutrients um per day that's based on an average woman um because again population measure so it's not going to be perfect for everyone 
But um, unless the portion's over 100 grams, it's based on 100 gram data. So the way I look at it is even though it's based on, you know, an, an average kind of woman in the UK, it's actually just showing you whether it's by percentage a sugary product or a salty product. Um, mm -hmm. So it is a very good starting point. The other thing to do is if that's not on the front of pack is you can nutrition information always has to be per 100 grams on the back of the pack. Um, and you can also look at the ingredients, the ingredients list, because the ingredients is always listed in order of quantity. Mm -hmm. So if you've got kind of your sugar near near the top, um, then you think that's going to, you know, you know, that's going to be higher in sugar than some of the other ingredients. So just go and look at the actual ingredients there. Now, I think sugar is particularly tricky to navigate in these products because what is recorded on the pack is total sugars. Total sugars is made up, it's 90 grams a day is a, not that anyone should be going like counting this by the way, but 90 grams a day um, that's made up of our kind of natural sugars that are in milk, milk-based products um, and kind of fruit and vegetables, but in their kind of more whole form. Mm -hmm. um, so that's about 60 grams of that 90 grams and then 30 grams is free sugars. Now, free sugars are those ones you want to consume less of. So you could guess some of them, the added sugar, your, your kind of white table sugars, um, your syrups and mm -hmm. honeys and things like that. But it also includes, um, I shouldn't just say white table sugar, actually, because brown as well. People seem to think that brown table sugar is healthier. It's much it's better. Like maple yeah. syrup, people think yeah. it's much healthier than white, than white sugar. And it, fundamentally, it's the same. They're the same. They have the same mm -hmm. impact on the body. And that's the key thing here. Um, but it's also made up of fruit um, and vegetables that are not in their whole form anymore so that have been processed and broken down so that includes kind of um sugar that is in smoothies and fruit juices or purees or in all those kind of fruit snacks then um so that is what that doesn't kind of break down on the front of pack so you could have something that's not a big proportion of your total sugars but it's entirely free sugars so it would look, you know, lower kind of overall than it is, if that makes sense. So I think pack, like labeling can be tricky. Um, ideally, we want to try and not have loads and loads of those super ultra ultra processed foods. But mm -hmm. but in order to achieve that, the government need to really incentivize uh, manufacturers not to be making loads of those foods. So again, I'll always come back to it's very easy to sit here and say, oh, if you just choose your whole products, you know that. That, that's going to be best for you but actually as a population we are all eating much more of the ultra processed foods and that's convenience convenience and that's what's on the shelves at, at yeah. the end of the day that's where the deals are that's on the the end of aisles you know that all the stuff that you walk past there's a reason why those foods are there it's because they've got high profit margins and they are prompt we, we are prompted to buy them when mm. they're kind of there and they stick out to you it's so important for people to understand the difference between total sugars and free sugars, because again, I keep taking it back, but I think there's been such a big spur and I'm not going to say anything bad around social media at the moment, but, you know, looking at kind of where we are now navigating in our society and, and what's kind of in front of us constantly and certain people who maybe aren't registered nutritionists or dietitians, you know, talking about their, what they eat in a day, which is one of the things that I hate Me and all of these healthy ways that you should be living. It is like, oh, I get the smoothie on the way home. But as we're breaking it down, it's, you know, is that the most healthiest choice? Is it just great yeah. to go and have some eggs on toast and you get home? And you're, do you know what I mean? It's talking about food in such a way aware, aware that 
you understand actually how much you're consuming and all of these total free sugars there was this huge boom about five years ago when the word clean eating came out Mm. and a lot of people said oh I can't have white table sugar completely demonize it and felt so much pressure to then go and have argive nectar sugar and honey and maple syrup but fundamentally like breaking it down in a nutritional point of view they're exactly the same in, in the body. And then that also led to an overconsumption of these foods because people then thought by eating certain foods that had loads of dates in, as opposed to white sugar, say if it was a brownie, mm. you could eat so much more, but it's yeah, not, it's yeah. exactly the same. And so I think it's really important for people to understand that if they're buying smoothies every single day, if they're saying, oh, actually I'm being much healthier because I'm putting in you know, 20 dates as opposed to so many tables of white sugar, I'm much healthier. And it's not saying you can't do any of that, but it's saying actually fundamentally it's the same thing. And they're so much more expensive, these syrups. So much more expensive. That's the thing as well. And so like to clarify for people on kind of smoothies and fruit juices, um, it's not, you know, that people should worry about consuming them. It's just the health halo that they've got isn't really warranted. So for example, there would still be some fiber in Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, smoothies, you'd still get some of the vitamins and minerals, but if people consider it of the fact that how many pieces of fruit um, and therefore fruits worth of sugar would they be consuming in um, yeah, in a smoothie or a fruit juice compared to if they were eating it, they wouldn't get through as much if they were eating it. And what happens is it, the free sugars is really those sugars that aren't in the cellular structure anymore. They're not within the cell wall. So they're free from that. Um, and then they that's why they kind of have a different impact on the body, but also teeth. Um, so I think that oh. you can get some benefits from smoothies and fruit juices, but the risk was like young people were consuming so many fruit juices all the time. And that does end up having a detrimental kind of impact in terms of the uh, pure, the amount of sugar that we're having. So government Definitely. guidelines are 150 mil maximum a day for fruit juices and, and smoothies. That's not even a glass that's smaller than like your, your, your normal glass size. Um, and they would only ever count as one of your five a day. So if you had three fruit juices or three smoothies, you haven't now got three of your five a day. You've still only got one. It's such an important point. There's two things that you said there. It's so again, they're not necessarily a wall. And it's that's another important thing because it's not got the fiber. So the fiber helps slow down the release of sugar into your blood system, um, which is really important. And it's also why it fills you up. So that's mm-hmm. why if you ate four apples, you would be really, really full. Yeah. If you juice four apples, it's not going to have the same effect. And it's the same thing as, as looking at that, you know, you've got all of the nutrients within that apple, the fiber, you've got everything that helps work in synergy mm. together but you've just basically got the pure sugar in, in a fruit juice and yeah. you and another thing that goes with food labeling is 150 mils I mean I if I pour myself a drink I never think oh I pour half a glass I, I pour a full glass yeah same with if I if someone has cereal you don't think oh, I'm gonna get 40 grams which is actually very very small in a portion size people yeah. averagely have double the amount of that so when yeah. you're looking at food labeling you're thinking oh I'm only having this much in reality, it's actually quite confusing because you're probably yeah. having a lot more. And I think this is the whole navigation with food labeling, with portion sizes that, again, can be so misleading for so many people. Yeah. And I think it's also putting into context, again, kind of the portion sizes that are on the front of packaging and, mm. and public health, because that's a one size kind of portion mm. size, um, because we have to have a ballpark. We have to have something that gives some kind of information. Mm-hmm. But there's always a caveat there that we don't want people weighing out their cereal as such, because mm. That would that energy requirements is totally different for different individuals. Mm. Um, 
so yeah it's kind of God, i don't want to use the pun taken with a pinch of salt because it's, not, <laughs> it's also a great it's, pun to use in this thank, thank you all, all about a food pun all about food pun but it's not um you know it's not that, that that information is totally irrelevant we have to have some average kind of guidelines for portions mm. because otherwise people have no idea but also people do need to just bear in mind that that what they need will be different to like someone else so it's not like a recommendation for going weighing everything out i don't think that's a Completely. healthy approach yeah no. either um yeah so just a kind of caveat with that as well it's, it's just it's the tricky thing about public health is not um a recommendation for each and every individual person mm. Yes, and I think that's going to bring me really nicely on to the next topic, which is I'm trying to really get through this because there's so many things I want to talk to you about. But <laughs> it is, it's so important to be in, to understand the individual level of your own health and nutrition and your guidance. And I always say, if you're worried about that or you're, you're confused, go and see a registered nutritionist or a dietitian who can really okay. help with that. But just understanding like small things about food labeling can make such a big impact because that does affect our nutritional choices and things like portion sizes, being a bit more mindful, you definitely do not need to be weighing out any foods. I always mm-hmm. actually advise the opposite and chuck out scales. But just where if people are say, trying to think, well, I'm trying to navigate this. Just small things thinking, actually, is that 45 grams? It's probably more like 100, which is completely yeah. fine. But it's yeah. just being aware of what's what marketing is leading us to believe. And that's where we can get a bit confused with our with our choices that, that we're seeing our packets and the things like sugars as well, total yeah. sugars to free sugars. I mean, most people aren't going to have that knowledge to navigate that and understand that. So it can be very, a real minefield for some people. Yeah. Now, as you said, Public Health England are trying to make some measures with obesity. Mm. And we're going to get on to kind of the full breakdown of, well, not the full breakdown because we'd be here for three days. But we're <laughs> going to go into like the new strategy that they've come out with. But one of the things they've come out with in the last week, which is why I'm really glad that we were recording this because we get, didn't get to speak about this last time, <laughs> is calories on menus. Mm-hmm. Now, one of their approaches to help reduce obesity in the UK, and I just said to you earlier, I've just read this article on BBC News, one million hospital admissions for obesity in the UK currently mm-hmm. was written in the BBC News last week, which is, you know, I never like to really use the word epidemic, but we're kind of we're getting to that stage where it's becoming a very big problem within our society, the excess amounts of obesity. Um, and I have to say that nutrition is one of those factors, you know, nutrition is one of the things that is causing this excess weight gain. Mm-hmm. So, is, so is our food environment. So one of the strategies that public health England have put in is calories on menus. And I'm sure, mm-hmm. and I know that you have seen a huge kind of uproar in the news recently around this and the for and against. And I'd love to hear your opinions on the calories on yeah. food menus. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it has been a lot of uproar. I think, you know, what happens in these conversations is it's never balanced out. The people who aren't offended by it or find it quite useful um, don't speak up, understandably, because they're just, OK, whatever, you know, that, that that will help nudge me perhaps when I'm out or I'm just going to ignore it. That's the majority of people, the minority of people. And I'm not undermining this isn't to be flippant about this um, mm. group at all, because it's really, really important that there are measures in place to support people with eating disorders or disordered eating um is I guess the the more vocal group um, and that is you know people obviously say there's been a lot of backlash in terms of people not wanting this information on there um because of it can contribute to eating disorders we know that the nutrition information in and of itself does not cause you know eating disorders mm. but does it make it trickier for people who have them that was a really difficult balance then because 
Um, it's a public health measure that is meant to kind of be there to support the, the majority, but you have to you have to you know be safe with it as well. You don't want loads of unintended consequences. So I think it should be um, fully evaluated and and monitored. But the whole point of it is to level the playing field in a way like supermarkets, retail, you have to have that nutrition information um, on the packaging by law. You have to have it on the packet. You don't have to have anything. They don't have to declare what they put in that food at all when you go out to eat. Um, and so it's leveling the playing field to making sure they're more transparent, the eating out of home sectors so of our restaurants, coffee shops, um, et cetera. And a lot of them do it already, by the way, with the calories um, on menus. It's about the them being transparent about what's actually in their meals. Um, so obviously putting calorie information, there's some kind of early studies. It hasn't, the policy hasn't been implemented yet, but drawing some from um, some kind of North American work, there are uh, there is kind of evidence to show that it would reduce um, calorie intake. And this is kind of average, so it might not for everyone. And it sounds by like a small amount. I think it's by like, say, 8% per meal or something. But over time for everyone, like that isn't an insignificant amount. Mm. Um, and then the other really important point, because, you know, I always talk about it not just being down to kind of that individual um, is about the reformulation aspect. So if they all of a sudden have to be more transparent about what's in their food, does that mean they're more responsible about it? Because we're not talking about, because some of the conversation in reaction to this in the press was around, well, you know, restrictive eating isn't good physiologically for lots of different reasons. That's a whole different podcast, which I agree with. But this isn't about restrictive eating. This is about, you know, labeling that this, this meal has got, 1,100 calories in this one has got 650 calories in and if someone might not have you know been able to decide between the two that might be a particularly healthy you know nudge for them to make and without a consequence um so yeah I think that there is so much to consider with this but one of the things around reformulation is there has been a study which just shows that the ones that do tend to label their nutrition more are mm -hmm lower in fat um lower in salt so yeah i guess the other part of this conversation as well has been why just calories we don't want to you know, reduce everything to calories and i agree with that as well like the nutrients is really really important but in a lot of these foods that we would be consuming calories and nutrients aren't well linked as in just because a product has more calories in doesn't mean they have more nutrients in um sometimes it can be the opposite actually um <laughs> So, yeah, very long winded answer. And I think that it's important to consider um, any unintended consequences. And it obviously like must be measured for that. But I think that for me, what I was struggling with now we're in territory where we're saying we can't be transparent about what's even in foods because of eating disorders, which is not a nutritional disorder. Mm. It's a highly psychological. Yeah, it's a highly psychological disorder that needs, you know, psychologist support and what we should really all be raising our voice on there is helping with support systems and services, which are lacking for this mm. group of people um, to make them more available to support those people in being able to go to restaurants and not be, you know, find these situations difficult because mm. they are just going to a restaurant is difficult for people yeah. who suffer from eating disorders, it like is. just by, by itself. Mm. Um, so yeah, we do definitely need more services in, in that area.
I think it's such an important point, and I think we're very, very, very aligned in our in our opinions on this, which is which is really nice because you know I do work a lot with people with have very poor relationships with food and disordered mm. eating, and knowing from that demographic of group, which is a very small percentage of the population, but a very important one at the same time is that there is so many facets to having an eating disorder as it is a mental health condition and just putting calories on menus is not going to give somebody an eating disorder. There's so many other elements to an eating disorder. And I think it is really, really aware for us Mm. to know that that's going to be very triggering for somebody, but there's so many triggers in people with eating disorders in everyday life. This is one of the many triggers that sadly Mm. comes their way with having an eating disorder. And it's not saying that that is uh, allowed to be okay. But when we're looking at the general population, we're also having a lot of people dying from obesity at the same time. And so I think, as you said, the we need to action more support within eating disorders to give them more support, to allow them to feel that they can even go into a restaurant. Because when eating disorders are severe, restaurants yeah. are a no-go. Um, yeah. And the, the government are, um, that they, they've said in their legislation about including blank menus without calories so people can request those. The problem is that the people who perhaps have the eating disorders are... Will want a calorie on a menu because so, they want to know. So I don't know how much of a solution it is, but you know we can see but as you said like we are talking about and the, the, the big thing about public health is that it's for the general population and so when we yeah. look at kind of the distribution of, of healthy people we are significantly more in the obese end and that's what we need to tackle within public yeah. health and so one yeah. of these so when we look at the, the recent data which the government's report just came out and said it said eating out accounts for 20 to 25 percent of people's energy total energy intake mm. now that's a quarter of just eating out so if we can again implement strategies that can help people make a healthier choice that are mm. struggling with the obese end of the spectrum yeah and it can be a very positive thing yeah. doesn't mean it's going to solve it again there's so many facets to yeah solve obesity but it's it's one step, I guess, in, in a direction that can help make a healthier choice. Yeah. And I think we always talk about obesity and eating disorders as if they're two separate things, but sometimes they can, they, yeah, sometimes they can, you know, they can definitely um, interlink. Um, yeah. I think that there's, you know, a, a space for kind of giving nutrition information um, to people because we also have to acknowledge that within our food environment, we do need opportunities to self-regulate like mm. and most people do do that to an extent and at no cost um but it is really tricky obviously when people have um psychologically um mental health issues and that that kind of is manifested in kind of food and what they eat and that's kind of a bit of a control mechanism as well mm. so we do need support systems for that like 100 percent yeah yeah, it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because I think there's always different demographics that are going to suffer um, yeah. with different areas within nutrition and public health, sadly, can never cover it all. But as you said, I think that's fantastic that they are aware that this is a really important area as well. Um, and I would say if there's anyone who really is struggling with this mm-hmm. coming out and has an eating disorder or has any kind of disordered relationship with food, like please do seek help because they're even though people, again, I think even hearing that helps limited, again, raises a trigger with people that think that they can't gain help. But yeah. there is lots of different websites such as Beat UK out there that you can go to for support if you are struggling 
So that brings me on really nicely to another health measure, actually, which is BMI. Now, there's been quite a few headlines in the press recently about BMI is not the most accurate health measure. And I'm sure you can remember being at university, learning about nutrition. And it was always taught to us that when you see somebody, the first thing you look at is their BMI to determine whether they're undernourished, underweight, whether they're normal or whether they're obese or severely obese. Um, And that's basically how you start defining people within their weight category. But recently, it's now been spoken about, and I say recently, but in the last month, there's been a lot more conversation around this, around BMI is not an accurate um, health measure. Can you discuss this, please? (laughs) Yeah, I think this is another kind of death by headline situation, because actually, it's not telling us necessarily anything particularly new. I think we've always known that a body mass index, so it will tell us um, what our weight to height ratio is. Um, so it give us some indication of health. Um, so it's measured in weight in kilograms divided by a height in meter squared. Um, but it never tells us the whole picture. And we know that because what it doesn't tell us is anything about our body composition in terms of what of that additional weight is fat mass and what is lean mass. Um, and that is the crux, that bit of um, kind of being like a health indicator. Um, however, to get that body composition information and that breakdown, you need more specialist equipment. So it's just not feasible for a public health measure um, across the board um, to use to use that body mass index. It does um, have a good correlation to if you carry in that extra weight, then um, that will relate to or you've got a higher BMI then it generally does relate to extra fat mass. But there are some anomalies. So you always get like the rugby player example. And well, you know, a rugby player has got a high BMI in the obesity category because they're carrying lots of muscle mass. And yeah, there are going to be some anomalies like that. Um, I think at either end of the spectrum, it can be more useful. I think that BMI becomes a bit more blurry and um, more kind of in, in the middle um, but it's criticised for children as well. And you think, well, children, they're not going to be carrying lots and lots of extra muscle mass. So the recommendation is we do still need it as a population measure, because I'll just put out the question to anyone else. Well, what do you propose? What's better? That brings it back to the importance of individual levels. So when we are actually looking at some quick, tangible ways that we can assess health, that mm. is a one stop quick solution. But then if there is any excess help, then it goes more into an individual level. And then you do go into more specific testings. And I think another thing that you said is really great was about waist circumference and the distribution of fat. So if you are somebody that does have, I don't know, maybe a big beer belly or somebody that's got a lot of fat more around their waist circumference, and that is a high increase of risk for cardiovascular disease and certain other chronic health mm. conditions. So just being a little bit more aware of your body generally. Um, But I do like what you say, you know, the anomalies, it doesn't work for. And Mm. that's when hopefully, if you are at that end of a professional rugby player, you will hopefully, fingers crossed, have a nutritionist with you. Anyway, he can look at your health on a more individual level and not allow you to think that you're obese because you've got a higher muscle mass. And so I think that's a really important thing. All of our conversation today is centered around the general health population but again we need to always take into account that that does not account for everybody there's always going to be anomalies minority groups within that 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 these policies do not align to but when we look at it in a general overall way for the UK that's why they're being placed there and I think that's a really important note to add that when you are reading these headlines or when you are looking at the new public health policies that are coming out they might not be suited directly to you because you might be in one of those minority groups. 
And I think that is a really important area just to consider. But in the general overview for the general population, this is what it's targeted towards. Yeah, perfect. Um, so for you, because you are so, you know, you're, you're, you do so much work within the public health policy, you worked on the action for sugar, which we know, actually, we didn't even state this, but we do know that from the implementation of the sugar tax, mm. that there was a very positive outcome in the reduction of total sugars, wasn't there? Yeah, so the sugar tax is an interesting one, because Again, lots of negative headlines at first, whether, you know, you're ruining favourite drinks or you're demonising sugar. It was a public health policy that absolutely needed to happen. So, um, you know, especially young people consuming two to three times more free sugars than recommended. This was having, you know, big issues in dental decay. Um, and sugary drinks, soft drinks were the biggest contributing source of sugar. Like that's why you target that, that you know, that particular area. And what the government implemented was a sugar uh, levy so that means it's a tax on the manufacturers and um, they have to pay the government a tax if their product contains more than five percent sugar it was a stage levy so it was more if it contained eight percent um and what that led to is a lot of reformulation so a massive driver like at an unprecedented rate of reformulation whereby manufacturers really quickly reduced the amount of sugar um, in their products now, that led between 2015 to 2019, I think it was about 40, just over 40 percent, 44 percent reduction in sugar in drinks. Um, intake overall of sugar reduced by about 35 percent, which is huge from these products. Um, but sales of these soft drinks still increased it, um, overall. Now, even though that might sound like, oh, we don't necessarily want that. That's a, that's a bad outcome. It's not necessarily because what happened was it encouraged the manufacturers to diversify their ranges. So you've got your low or no sugar options or gradually kind of change and reformulate their sugar, their most sugary kind of options as well. So the reason why it's not, you know, that's not a really, really awful outcome to have happened is one of the biggest pushbacks from all of these um, campaigns is what's the impact on businesses. And actually they, yeah, they've still increased sales. They still maintain their market, but they've diversified their range and they have, still contributed to a mass reduction in sugar kind of across the population mm. which is a kind of a win-win for all isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah and there was it you know most people did reduce most of the manufacturers did reduce sugar in their actual drinks because gradually you know if you do that over time people were less likely to kind of notice um but they, the ones that didn't did then create, create that price differentiation. So mm -hmm. were encouraged to it, to pay that tax to increase the price of their most sugary drink. Um, now, what that does, even though it's not the most popular approach and it definitely wasn't what the tax was designed to do, it wasn't designed to put it kind of on the individual, it's designed to put it on the manufacturer. But what that does is that price differential does act as a bit of a nudge for people. So this is because this is how the taxes worked in most other countries. Ours is quite a unique way where people think, OK, well, that's the cheaper option. I'm going to go for like the sugar free or the lower sugar option. So that also does kind of create um, a little nudge and change in behavior as well. And I think the best thing about that is that it all went to the it didn't go to the consumer. It went to the person, it went to the manufacturer and making it. And I, so yeah. I think that's a big outcome for us is that as a as a population, we're not then paying for that. Yeah, it's um, taxing the people who are profiting from selling the unhealthy stuff, basically. And we should also should mention that that money that the tax raises hypothecated, which um, it can be quite rare, but really, really important, where it was ring fenced to go back into child health. So um, 
it was I think it was like to, to do with sports and PE classes and also breakfast clubs and things like that so overall that's a really good example of a public health measure because people aren't having to necessarily take loads of responsibility themselves they're still drinking maybe what they were drinking but just a bit lower in sugar yeah and not only is that helping your health but that's also then improving as you said as a ring fence it's going back into social impact and working mm-hmm. with the next generation of young children which is you know which is where I think health and nutrition should be in schools and it mm. should be taught and people should be aware of this as they're growing up, which is yeah. so important. I think making being able to know and educate yourself on this is allows you to make those better choices and decisions when you can. Um, Jenny, thank you so much for coming on to Live Well Be Well today. I always want to end the podcast by asking you a question because, you know, yeah. knowing that we've talked all mm-hmm. about how we can make good choices is how do you live well and be well (laughs) that is a good question um (laughs) I'm always conscious as a health professional to be like well I just did this this and this because I feel like it sets you up as a bit of like a you know a pedestal thing but like I would have to say uh, like my the thing that I really concentrate on is sleep Mm. (laughs) it is like the most I think it's like one of the most important things and it has a knock-on impact as well in terms of like what you eat your exercise and everything and I think that it can be underrated a bit we get we're so caught up in sort of like like how many kind of vitamins or superfood claims like a particular food score and actually sometimes we just need to go really back to basics so mine is all about just trying to be better at sleep amazing well I hope we get a good night's sleep tonight seeing it yes (laughs) (laughs) thank you for coming on so much and being part of live well be well thanks for having me Thank you so much for joining us today on this really important topic of conversation surrounding the food environment. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you did enjoy it, please do leave a five-star review either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And until next week, I hope that you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.